Okay, this morning we have a very interesting section of Scripture that I have found intriguing for years, and that's about this bitter root and Esau. And there's yet another warning here in Hebrews about apostasy. And it has to do with what Esau did as a role model for what not to do. We've got a ton of notes here if I can read it all. But we are, uh, we finished with verse 14 last week. And now we're going to have um, three verses here that really give a warning. I don't know if we'll get through all three, but I'll read them right now to set the stage for this discussion about the warning given to this little church or this church of people who were converted, uh, who were Jewish. And it says here, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that now no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it defile. Hebrews 12:15. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And a very intriguing section, and I spent quite a bit of time researching this. And uh, true to form, one of my favorite scholars, William Lane, helped, helped me understand this because of his knowledge of the biblical languages. And there are several allusions here that are taken right out of the Septuagint of uh, the book of Genesis. And I'll be pointing that out. And also from the book of um, Deuteronomy. So the bitter root analogy comes right out of Deuteronomy, and we'll look at that. And the Esau story, of course, is in Genesis. And to set the stage to help us understand this, much like earlier material in Hebrews, there's this um, analogy with people or the entire people of God in the Old Testament and things that happen there that serve as a warning for what the writer of Hebrews sees happening in this church here. And then, of course, by putting it in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is warning all of us. All right? And in the Old Testament, what happened was that the people, uh, during the wilderness wanderings, when Moses preached to them, which the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon, and the people had um, rebelled against God a number of times, and this bitter root was discussed. It's a metaphor from a plant. And it threatened to poison the entire congregation. So the concern here is that if some apostatize, if some turn away from God, and the community doesn't leap into action to prevent that and to, and to uh, try to see to it that no one falls short, that this could defile the entire covenant community, much like what happened in the old, under the Old Covenant when some of their rebellions brought a curse and distress on, on the entire people. Now, notice um, um, verse 14, the context, Pursue peace with all men and sanctification, which when no one will see the Lord. Then it goes into verse 15, See to it that no one comes short. And there's actually, in the Greek, there's a three repeated phrases that's translated here, no one, that no one comes short, that no root of bitterness come up, and that no one godless or immoral person. 
There, those, it's the same phrase in the Greek, so there's three things that go on here. And it all links back to verse 14 where, it's, where they're told the importance to make sure everyone in the community is brought along in regards to sanctification Amen. and holiness. Amen. And that our concern should be for every single member of the Christian community, that everybody's spiritual well-being is very important, and that we should never glibly see our fellow brothers and sisters falling and just let it happen. We should intervene as much as possible so that we don't lose any. And that, and that people are brought along in a sanctified manner as a Christian community. Okay, so now, now let's focus in on verse 15. See to it in the Greek is um, watch. And in the um, present continual tense, so it says keep watching or continually be watchful. And what the entire group is to do is to watch that now nobody comes short of grace. That no one um, would uh, be found outside of grace and that every single one, along with every other, along with all the Christians, would be part of being a group of, that receives grace from God. Now, grace is the means by which we don't fall away. Grace is the means by which we are saved. Grace is that which sanctifies us. And grace is uh, what's going to keep us. Now, the centrality of grace is absolutely necessary in Christian theology. Anything less than that, we will fall and fail. I was... Who was I was talking to Carl. I'm writing an article right now on free will. And I'm warning my readers that this is going to be the most complex article I've ever published. And I wouldn't, and I wouldn't do it. I'm, and there's a reason. And Keith's helped me uh, decide, make it. I'm going to do summary statements for the people that need the easier version. But the reason it's so complex is because it is. And the reason I'm writing it is it's the number one question I get from, from my readers is, well, what about free will? Because people are sending these emails around saying, well, you've got to believe in free will or you're a heretic. And I, I read that and I think that's so stupid. They don't even know what free will is. They can't even define it and they're demanding faith in it. So what I'm going to do is write an article to show how exceedingly complex even defining free will is. And that the people who are glibly demand faith in it don't even know what they're talking about. So you say, can safely disregard them. All right, that's what the article is about. Now, in discussing this, I'm agreeing with Luther, who wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. And the reason Luther felt like that was the most important thing he ever wrote, and the reason Luther was anathematized by Rome, was that if Luther is right on his doctrine about human bondage to sin that you cannot extract yourself from by your own efforts... Then the Reformation doctrine of grace alone is also true. Okay? Now Rome had a doctrine called synergism. And, uh, and they believed that salvation was a cooperative effort between man and God. And Luther believed that that was abusive because Rome was teaching that human effort was part of the salvation equation and they controlled the means. 
All right? And so they could dispense salvation or not dispense it as they saw fit. Because they controlled this whole mechanism by which you cooperated with God in order to find salvation. So the solas of the Reformation were to deliver people from this false man-centered religion. Amen. And that if it's faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, Scripture alone, this church couldn't control the means because they're in God's hands. If they're in God's hands, they're not in the Pope's hands. Amen. All right. Well, the, the problem, and my article will show this, is that we don't believe this anymore in the evangelical church for the most part. And, and, and that we've become ignorant even of the issues themselves and why the Reformation was so important. And we believe in this thing called free will, which is very difficult to even define. But what I think most people mean is that people have the ability to be of self-determination. That we control our own destiny and our own well-being. It's in our hands. And God's there to help, but it's a cooperative effort. And the only part that really matters is ours because God's always there like the big power supplier. And if we don't do it, we don't do it. So it's, it's in our hands. Now, I was talking about this with Carl. There's, there's a reason I'm saying this about falling short of grace. Here is why I see it's being important. If you believe that everything that God's going to do in our lives is by grace, whether it's salvation, whether it's sanctification, and ultimately glorification, then if you really believe that and you wanted to see to it that no one falls short of grace, you would make sure that the means of grace are front and center in the church. Because God is going about changing people by His grace and, and, but if, see, if you believe in human ability, then you think, well, see, everybody already has this ability. They could do everything that they're supposed to do. And so we just need to hire, uh, therapists. Uh, we need to do how-to seminars because, see, we think that the whole problem is we just don't know how to do it. If we knew how, we could just go do it ourselves. Just show me how to do it. All right. And so we got how-to seminars. We got therapists. We got 12-step groups. We got shape program. We got, uh, blah, 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 blah. And then you wonder why, and then, and then they do polls and they find out the people in the evangelical church are in worse shape than they ever were. Well, you, here's my passion. If you're going to change, it's going to be by grace, not by how to. Amen. And how does God dispense grace? Through His ordained means. Yes. Key. And the how to means, it's not just how do you do it so often, but when it comes from the pulpit, is you must do this, and you must do that, and you must do this. If you do these things, you will earn grace. That's what the context is, is you will earn grace by doing these rules. You don't go to move. You know, I can take all kinds of different things. If you give all your money away, if you do all this stuff, then you will earn grace. Join my program or give your money to me, and, they some say. If you have good marriages, you'll earn grace. If you have good kids, you'll earn grace. If you have a smile on your face when you are afflicted, you'll earn grace. And it's just mm-hmm. not that way. So the, con- the, the contrast is how presented yeah. a way to earn grace or presented a right. way you have grace. Exactly. And, and that was what Luther was fighting Rome over. Okay? Because Rome had this elaborate system of how you earn grace. You come and you do what we tell you to do. And there's a very, very elaborate. And there's a lot of steps and a lot of do this, do this, do this, join a monastery if you want to really have grace. Uh, or want to really excel. And, and when Luther says no, and the human will is in bondage and doesn't even want to do... In fact, I'm quoting Luther in my article. He says, the only person 
the only being in the universe with free will is God. Because only God has total self-determining power. Everything else is dependent on something else. All right? We can't even exist on our own. We, we couldn't take another breath if God didn't allow us the privilege of taking another breath. And so, well, we, and then, and so then what, what Luther said was, the human will is the servant of Satan. And it's in bondage to sin and it has no desire to do anything but sin. And, and so then I, then I quote Trent and it says, if anybody says, if any man saith, free will is a thing in name only and not a reality, and that it is the, under the devices of Satan, let him be anathema. Gee, I wonder who they meant. <laughs> May Luther go to hell for saying free will is not free but in bondage. Yes, Keith. What I've seen in my own life is that people that are preaching bondage, saying you must do this, you must do that to earn grace, use this very verse and say, you're not obeying us, you're not submitting to what we're proclaiming to you that you have to do, therefore you have a brother of bitterness, you're not getting it. Yeah, yeah, you're going to fail. All right, but notice the context. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification. Now here, we talked about that, all men here meaning those, all people in the congregation. Well, there's no peace with the wicked, right? Um, without which no one will see God, see to it no one comes short of grace. So the, we are called as a body of brothers and sisters in Christ to have love and compassion for one another, to pray for what are the means God will use, prayer, fellowship, the Word of God, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. That's what we talk about here, and, and that are things you find all the way through the New Testament. And that if someone is is falling or, or, or not making it, that we make sure that we include them in these means that God is graciously using to change us. To not just let somebody die on the vine, I'll let somebody fall away. And uh, but to as a community, pull everybody together and help everybody grow and care about everybody's well-being. And um, and then. Uh, um, Leif, maybe you told me a story, or maybe I heard it from Leif, but remember the story about he thought he found a good church? Yeah. And, and, and it looked good because they had MacArthur material and R.C. Sproul material. And then the sermon, was, what did you say it was? It was a lot of James Covey and just Yeah, okay, yeah. So, so Leif is struggling to find these means that we're talking about in Boston. And he goes to this church thinking he'll find the means of grace, and he finds how-to. Okay? Psychology and how-to. And that's the content of most sermons that are being preached. And, and, it, and it's all based on the rejection of the Reformation doctrine of grace alone. Amen. And we're, we're, we're believing in cooperative effort between man and God, and God's always doing his part, so the only one that really matters is us. So you end up with a man-centered approach. I was just looking at some of the cross-references to this verse. Now, maybe I'm preempting you here, but uh, there's a cross-reference to Galatians 5, uh, 4. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So it's not just falling into sin, but it's falling into the default mode of trying to earn your own. That's a very good cross-reference. I'm going to repeat it. It was Galatians 5, 4. The, the, the the, there's a you know a debate about whether you can fall from grace. Well, the interesting thing is the only, this is a warning not to in, in Hebrews, and the only time 
um, the Bible talks about somebody falling from grace, it was people trying to go back to works. Amen. In Galatians. They were being nasty sinners. The overt sense is that they were claiming that they could earn it. And that was the yeah. Yeah, they weren't going into overt sin. They were just claiming, claiming that you could do by good works, uh, find justification and sanctification. And Paul said to those same ones in Galatia, he says, are you so foolish that you've begun in the Spirit and you're perfected by the flesh? All right, and so if we're saved by grace alone, we're sanctified by grace alone as well. Amen. Uh, Bill, did you have something you want to say? Well, I was thinking, uh, you know, it seems like these people that the psychological means to better humankind are taking the Bible and uh, Christianizing their doctrines. In other words, they're, they're using the Bible as, uh, to legitimize their doctrines where if they would just go the other way and examine their own their own concepts in light of the Bible and use the Bible as a plumb bob, uh, then we wouldn't have the problem. Yeah, for example, there's a there's a debate going on about this Ken Blanchard, a New Ager that now Christian supposedly is Christian, but he seems to keep being New Age as well. And he has this seminar called Lead Like Jesus. He's the inventor of the one minute manager. Well, what he's doing with this is extracting what he thinks are some valid leadership principles out of Jesus' life rather than letting the Bible tell us the significance of who Jesus is, what he did, and what, why we need him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he's sort of like the one that shows us how to be better leaders rather than the one who's going to save us from our sins. So you can try to, this is one of the essence of liberalism, by the way, and Jan and I talked about that a little bit. Okay, I think that what's going on today is the same thing that happened in 1910 with the modernists. All right, the postmodern, the postmodernists are going to destroy the church just as surely as the modernists did. All right, and what it is is taking the Bible and removing the the means of grace, removing redemption and atonement, and removing uh, what it's all about, salvation from from hell. And, and the blood atonement, and extracting instead from the Bible is eth- ethical guidance. And that's, for, and that's exactly what the liberals did. Well, we can't know anything about heaven and hell, but we can live better lives now. So we're going to solve the world's problems. We're going to help you fix your marriage. We're going to help you have less stress in the workplace. We're going to help you uh, find meaning and all these wonderful things. That's exactly, that's exactly what the liberals did in 1917 and, and that, that the fundamentalists reacted to, and that's what we got today. And so you can say, well, we're going to have a lead like Jesus seminar. Why? So you can be better leaders in your business, in your family. You're going to be more successful. Well, what about atonement? Well, we don't know anything about that. So what would you say about Zig Ziglar? <laughs> he's a, he's, it's again, it's a garbage. Zig Ziglar, how to, how to live a better life, but it won't get you to heaven. Yes. <clears throat> Uh, I think we're to look to Jesus as our example, but we we look to him, and if, if you, you study the Gospel of John, there's so much in there about the relationship between Jesus and the Father, and it fleshes out a lot of things. And Jesus says, I can do nothing except uh, what I see the Father do. Mm-hmm. I can do nothing on my own. And even the church is given to him by the Father, so there's... There's this relationship that we need to understand between Jesus and the Father so that we can understand what our relationship to God should be. 
And there's a there's a total dependence by Jesus on his father. And his father is the one that raises him up. The, his father is the one that exalts him. His father is the one that puts him at the right hand. And, you know, this is a mystery because uh, uh, Jesus is, is deity. Jesus is God. Right. So we can't just go try to do that ourselves. Right. But, but he shows us this dependence and this looking toward the father. He says... I have food that you know nothing about. And that food is to do the work of the one who sent me. Mm-hmm. And so you see him getting, receiving from the Father everything. It's, you know, and, and I think it's a picture of the grace that we're to receive too. Absolutely. We don't sustain ourselves. We feed on what the Father gives us. We depend on that. Amen. We receive it. That's the spiritual food. And he told Peter, feed my sheep. Let's get, let's look at the passage now. Okay, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. So we here are, let's make a commitment by the Lord's grace that we want everyone here to receive the grace they need from God. Amen. And that, that God would change lives, that God would sanctify, and that God would give them the wisdom and strength and, and salvation, sanctification, everything that's needed. That's what, that's what it says. See to it that nobody comes short. Now what is, what happens if some, if Someone comes short of grace. Well, here's what it says. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and defile many. So a, a, a bitter root, and that's a genitive in the Greek of quality, one that produces bitter fruit. So a, 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 a bitter plant gets into the congregation and brings a, a bitter results and causes trouble, and it would defile the entire community, just like the wilderness wanderers were as the whole community was defiled in the Old Covenant. Now, um, let's see here. Dan, could you look up Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 19? In fact, everybody turn to that. Deuteronomy, what? Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 19. This is where this idea comes from. This is a, In the Septuagint, the phrases in certain translations of... Um, of, the, of this come right out of here. All right? So that's what's being alluded to. Deuteronomy 29, 18, and 19. So when you have it, go ahead and read it. Lest there should be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth all gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he blessed himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. Okay. That's the King James. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the authorized version. <laughs> No, that's okay. That wasn't bad. That's a, that was a good one. All right. Now, can, can, now I hope you can see now how this uh, idea, the ideas in Hebrews 12 are drawn from this passage, including the situation that they were in here. Okay? There, there be, lest there be among you a man or woman or family or tribe. In other words, out of this whole congregation, there may be some that this would happen to. And now it says in Hebrews it would defile many if it does. All right, and that they their heart would turn away from the Lord, that would be analogous to this coming short of grace, 
and uh, to serve other gods. They're tempted to go into the things that are forbidden. Lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit. That's where that bitter root is. And it's an analogy from the plant world. But it's a very healthy plant that's growing. But the fruit of it is bitter and poisonous. And destructive. Alright? And it comes from a heart that's turning away. A heart that's turning away. And then the, the result of somebody having this uh, problem of coming short of grace is this. They hear the words of the curse. Now, that would be the, uh, in Deuteronomy 28, remember? Cursed, if you don't listen to God and you don't follow God, you're going to be cursed rather than blessed. So, the person in, in question in Deuteronomy hears this, the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant, and begins to think, oh, uh, that won't happen to me. I'm going to have peace, shalom, well-being. Even though I follow my own imagination, as it says in the King James, even though I'm just going to do this my own way, it won't happen. They don't, they don't, literally don't believe that God's going to do what He said He was going to do. Uh, Keith. I was just in, uh, the UK with some friends and they kind of promoting the, the drift of the Anglican Church, because now they're ordaining homosexuals in the Anglican Church. And it's becoming this big, big divide. And what I was saying is, I grew up in a charismatic culture where we have one set of problems and one set of apostasies. I think that when you come to a, a deadness or a, what we call a dead church, or something like there, mm-hmm. that the proper response is to preach the law, to preach the demands that are, that are given here, just as, as this verse says. If you have fallen from grace, I'm warning you because this is what the concept is and this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because the warning in here is imperative on those who fall from grace or who are in the process of falling that we warn them and say this is the consequence. You will have a inherit this. Absolutely. Everything it says is true. The law is true. And if you continue in falling from grace, you'll be like Esau. Stop it. That's exactly right. The, the, the law is there to convict sinners. And grace is there for forgiveness and salvation and sanctification. All right? And so the, in, within the community of the Hebrews here, there were people who were contemplating apostasy. And they thought they could go back. In their case, they're going to go back to Temple Judaism. And if they, if the larger community allows that to happen, they're accepting this falling short of grace, and they're bringing defilement to many because this will spread. The boy, this poisonous fruit, according to Deuteronomy, will spread. It's its nature to spread. Now, I was going to quote William Lane. He's just so fabulous. Um, he says this, Those who enjoy the blessings of the new covenant are to be united in earnestly pursuing the peace that is both a sign and gift from God. And uh, within the community of faith, there is to be no separation of peace and holiness. If peace binds the community together as the achievement of Christ, holiness is that quality that identifies the community as a possession of Christ. Now, um, so they are consecrated to God. And so this is necessary, and we just can't let it slip away from us. 
because of falling short of grace. And I want to go forward here to, the, to this thing now because that was the context. Christian vigilance is the proper response to a peril that poses an imminent threat to the entire community. The danger is first envisioned as the forfeiture of the grace of God through carelessness. And, and, and that's an interesting idea, forfeiting grace through carelessness. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens when we are not given proper attention to the means of grace and to the Word of God. Amen. And it slowly slips away. And as we've been getting emails from around the world and talking to people, we were discussing this matter on, on the radio yesterday, um, and I've had many conversations with Jan about this, that 40 years ago, I don't think anybody would envisioned that you could go to a conservative evangelical church and sit there for a month and never tr- truly hear the Word of God. But that's carelessness. Amen. That's what carelessness looks like. And when you're careless about the things of God, you are in danger of falling short of grace. And this bitter, poisonous fruit spreading through the congregation. Amen. And the... And the, and the um, uh, first line of defense against that is God's word. Amen. That's exactly what Moses said. If they hear these words, but they don't listen to them, but where do they turn when they don't listen to the words? Their own imagination. And isn't that what's going on today? Amen. Instead of the words of God, we have contemplative prayer. Remember the debate? with this guy from this emergent church, their own imagination is all they have because they don't believe the words of God or at least they don't think they're meaningful. So that's the two sources that we're faced with, our own imagination or the Word of God. The Word of God will preserve us in grace. Our own imagination will deceive us and we'll start saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Remember Deuteronomy? Well, I have peace. I'm doing fine. Remember all those threats? God said that if I uh, did this, that I'd be cursed. Well, look it. I did it, and I'm doing fine. Because there's a delay in judgment, they don't think it's true. They don't think it's real. And only the Word of God will make us think that these threats are really true. Yes, Tyler. Because originally Satan's office is the Garden of Eden, because that's the exact same thing as you said to Eve. Was that did God actually say that you would die if you ate it? <laughs> Tyler, good, very good, absolutely. So he just said uh, it's the same thing in the Garden of Eden. What did God did God say you're going to die? Well, you won't die. So you, you just you just get careless in the thinking that it's not real. That's right. um, yes, Dan. You said yesterday they, these uh, preachers believe what you do, some of them, and they got uh, and it's stuck in their desk drawer. Well, God says so. Let your light shine before men, and don't hide it under a basket. It yeah. says the God of this age, Satan, is has blinded their eyes, lest they see the light of the glorious gospel. How dare mankind keep this theology in his desk drawer? All right, if you're a certified lifeguard, and you're a certified preacher, and you are out there amongst the spectators, and you don't show a lifeguard, a life jacket, in front of the spectators with your certification, knowing that you're a certified lifeguard, let them drown, they would call you and have you prosecuted. Because you're certified. These certified preachers, 
got the gospel, they're working, grieving, and quenching the Holy Spirit. How dare them not give the gospel to those that are drowning in sin? They have the light. God says, let your light shine. How dare you quench the light? Keep the light in your desk drawer when you know better. That they are quenching and going against the Holy Spirit. And he warns these preachers that a serious grievance that he may take some of them home. How dare you mock the Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, how dare you, preacher, that know better? Okay, so if we know the truth, we better say it. You better say it. All right. All right. Okay. All right, Dan. (laughs) Um, Well stated. (laughs) Now, I was going to read Lane. Yeah, is everybody awake now? (laughs) Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Um, He says this, how he's interpreting this uh, coming short of grace. Disregard of the grace of God made available in the gospel, huh? Disregard of the grace of God made available in the gospel, which issues from unbelief, carelessness, and willful renunciation of grace. And I'm getting rather bold in my old age, and honestly, I think that these man-centered doctrines that are somehow less than the Reformation doctrine of grace alone, is in in many ways a disregard for grace. We have too high of an understanding of man and his abilities and too small of an understanding of the great power and glory of God. And so if you believe in human ability, then you'll preach to human ability. You can do this, you can do this, you can do this. But if you believe in human sinfulness, you'll preach on the grace of God in in the gospel and that God has the power to change our wretched lives and to conform us into his image. And so what is going to change the lives of people? And what you preach in the pulpit is determined by what you believe about that, or if you don't care. And I hope I, I hate to think that people don't care. I, I, I don't know what motives are, but the fact is that if you really believe in man's power, then you'll preach what we typically hear. And if you believe in grace, you'll preach the means of grace. All right. Okay. And it says here in Lane, it is thus descriptive of apostasy. It connotes the objective act of drawing back, Hebrews 10.39, that distinguishes those who forfeit the grace of God from those who, through faith and steadfast endurance, inherit the promise. All right, so um, we have a, an important uh, warning here. And then going on to this, these clauses, no one, in the Greek it's metis. Repeated three times. He says here, Lane says, the metaphorical expression bitter root, the genitive of quality, describes the root as one that produces bitter or poisonous fruit. Growing up describes the root as living. It sprouts. It produces noxious fruit. The citation of Deuteronomy 29.18 from the Septuagint, or actually 17 in the Septuagint, shows that the metaphor refers to a stubborn disposition that express itself in unbelief and apostasy. Now, stubbornness, when it grows, produces noxious fruit of apostasy, which is equivalent to excluding oneself from the grace of God. Now, we've discussed this, you know, we've been how many years going through Hebrews, and this warning about apostasy, I've discussed this many times. Now, the question people say, well, but pastor, I thought you believed in, Perseverance. I thought you believed that God was going to keep us. So then what's the, the intent of a warning about apostasy? All right. 
And I'll give you, I'm not going to go through the whole discussion again. We've done it over and over, but some of you are new, so let me give you the short version. The short version is this. The warnings about apostasy are real, and we should take them with cold, sober seriousness. Amen. And that we should never read such a warning and think, well, I'm God's elect, I'm eternally secure, so I don't have to worry about this. Because if we feel that way, we may be in grave danger. We may not be. We may have false assurance. All right. But when, but if we read those things, we should take it with full seriousness and say in our hearts, but by the grace of God, there go I. And, and I could just as easily be a Judas Amen. as Judas was. Or more easily a Peter who, who, who denied the Lord but was brought back. That could happen. But these things should put, uh, as I quote uh, Daniel Fuller, he said this, these verses should scare the hellishness out of us. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, put, and drive us back to the grace of God. Now, are there any actual cases? So some people say, well, there isn't. If somebody actually doesn't truly fall from grace, then it's an empty warning. No, it's, it's, just, it's a totally serious warning. And anybody that would do it will get the full penalty. Now, and there are actual apostates like Judas, all right? So I say there's two, what's that? And Esau. And Esau. Yeah, Esau here is an apostate. Okay, there are such persons. And these warnings should be taken with due seriousness, but they're not, using them to overturn the security of the believer in the gospel is not the intent. That They are to help preserve us. In other words, for the true believer, the warning is effectual, and it is a means of grace, Amen. and God will use the warning to bring us back. Should we be on the brink? Amen. And so I, I preach this with full seriousness, and I'm not saying they're just fictional or not real. They're very real. I use an example in an article I wrote about this. Is it possible that the entire world could be destroyed by a nuclear holocaust? Yes. We have enough nuclear bombs to wipe out all life on planet Earth. So is that a real... So if somebody warned us about that, would it be a valid warning? But reading Bible prophecy, we would say, but we know it won't happen. Because God reserves for himself the right to judge the world. Okay, And so God's going to wipe out the world, but not man. But it's still, nobody would say the warning about that is not a valid warning unless somebody actually does it. So my argument is the warnings are valid whether they're actualized in, in, actual, in history or not. They, they are still a valid warning. Okay, so that's a short version. Uh, so, the, so this is another warning. Don't let this root of bitterness spring up. Um, um, and by the way, again, talking about the Greek uh, grammar, how it's used, there's a, a warning about not having something but with a subjunctive. So what that means is the Greek would tell us this. It's a, a, it's a prevention of a potential development. It's to prevent a potential development, not a, not one that's already actual. So that, again, serves as all of us. Is this a potential development? Is there any one of us who say, well, I would never do that? The Bible says, let him who stands, let him take heed lest he fall. So we wouldn't want to be, you know, just uh, self-full of ourselves. <laughs> so, all right, now, uh, moving on here. Uh, well, I have some cross-references, uh, Dean. 
Deuteronomy 32.32, and Brian, Proverbs 4.23, and Denise, Jeremiah 2.21, and Linda, Matthew 7.16-18, Stephan, Acts 20.30-31, um, Karen, 1 Corinthians 10.12, Keith, 2 Corinthians 6.1, and Carla, 2 Peter 3.14. So let's go back over here. And 32, 32. Deuteronomy 32.32 is what I have here. For their vine is the vine of Sodom, and the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. So there's again a warning about bitter fruit for apostates. Proverbs 4.23. Keep and guard your heart with all vigilance, and above all that you guard, for out of it flows the springs of life. Guard your heart with vigilance. A bitterness can take root in, in somebody's heart, can't it? Yes. I've seen it happen. Yes. I've seen people, they get like that, and they let it get to them. They start getting bitter over something that they felt like was an injustice done or something that God should have done that he didn't do, so they think, and they start letting this thing take over. And not only is this, this here is a warning of a person in a community, but I think it's also a warning about anything that could happen to any one of us in our heart. And the way to combat that is a reminder of the truths of God's Word and who God is. And, and that, that, and, and it also helps to know good theology. Amen. You know, we're studying Joseph, and I'm going to preach on Joseph this morning. Joseph could have got bitter. He was mistreated for, I was just looking, adding up the years. By the time he was from, from being sold into slavery to getting out, finally getting out of jail, he went from age 17 to age 30. So that's a lot of years to be mistreated by everybody around you. Okay? And he kept trusting God. So that's a good warning. Guard your heart. Um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, what, 2.21. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? Okay, God planted a good vine and he looked and he's found an alien. An alien vine that wasn't supposed to be in the vineyard. It was a complaint against Israel. Matthew seven sixteen to 18. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A bad tree, okay, yeah. A good tree cannot bear um, bad fruit, not not cast a, not, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Okay, nor can a bad tree bear, you need no glasses, huh? Oh, no, I <laughs> Go down to Kmart. <laughs> Anyhow, okay. Um, I've had, what, are, what is the good fruit that Jesus is talking about? I think it's worth talking. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit. What it, it says in um, Ephesians, the fruit of the light is all goodness and truth. I've had people say, we got judged by the fruit. And this guy has got good fruit. I said, what do you mean? Well, he's got 20,000 going to his church. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Whoever has the most followers. No, that's not the fruit. <laughs> Satan, how many know Satan has a lot of followers? Yeah, he's got the most, yeah. Yes. On your book, you talked about uh, 
those who say that Jesus has come in the flesh, it's a sign of the discerning of spirit, and it's a sign of good fruit when you point to Christ. Because you have to have the Holy Spirit to be able to point to Christ and to acknowledge what he did as the person in the work. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, makes a distinction between uh, what is of Christ and what's of the Antichrist. Yeah, if, if the proclaiming of the personal work of Christ is the true work of the Spirit. And those who have many opportunities to do so and continually don't aren't from God. And I think, you know, uh, you talk in your book about, you know, these, these dichotomies, these dichotomies, dividing these between light and darkness, you know, life and death. And I think that's one of the, the dichotomies there is, you know, can, do you profess Christ? Do you profess the power of his life and his death and his resurrection? Or don't you? You know, it gets pretty simple. It's very simple, Mike, and I totally agree. And I have a hard time getting pastors to, to get this. Uh, and I don't know why, but they want to work of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's good. We, there's a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit. But just read the book of Acts. What happened when the Holy Spirit led somebody? Or when the Holy Spirit came upon somebody? Or the Holy Spirit filled somebody? They proclaimed Christ. Amen. Yeah, they boldly, yeah, yeah, with boldness, they proclaimed Christ. In front of kings. I talked about this in the radio. Paul in front of King Agrippa. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? He said this. If... Um, when you're called before kings, as it, or you're called before dignitaries as a testimony to me, don't think ahead of time about what you're going to say, but the Holy Spirit will give you the words. <clears throat> okay, so what, when people get in front of a crowd of important people in the world, and the Holy Spirit's going to give the words, what does that look like? Well, we can, we've got examples in Acts where Paul and others were put in Stephen, whoever it was, Peter, were in front of important people, all right, like King Agrippa. And sure enough, the Holy Spirit gave him the words. And so what did Paul say? Well, King, I'm going to wipe out poverty in your kingdom for you. Uh, no, he didn't say that. He's, he, 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 yeah, he talked about global warming, right? Paul... Paul gets in front of Agrippa, King, we've got to do something about this global warming problem. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. This is so simple. I just don't understand why we can't figure it out. It's so simple. He proclaimed Christ. Amen. In, in Acts 26, and he talked about repentance from dead works. Amen. And uh, who was it? Festus? Who said it? Thou, thou almost persuadest me, me to become a Christian. Festus. Yeah. And so... That's how you discern the fruit and the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ is confessed even in front of hostile witnesses. The Holy Spirit, what does it say in Revelation? Keith, what's that verse? The Spirit of Prophecy. The testimony of Christ. The testimony, I shouldn't ask you questions when you just flew over from England. <laughs> it's probably like two in the morning in your time clock. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, the spirit of, or the testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So we're talking about prophesying. Well, we need people to prophesy. I agree. We need people desperately to be prophesying. We all 
should prophesy according to Paul. And what is the Holy Spirit causing when we prophesy? To testify of Christ. The testimony of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. So the Holy Spirit comes upon people and they testify authoritatively about Christ. That who he is, what he did, why we need him, and repentance from dead works to serve the living God. Yes. We see the spirit of prophecy coming on Balaam, who's a pagan diviner, and he testifies about Christ. Absolutely. The spirit of prophecy coming upon Caiaphas, who's in the process of trying to wickedly kill Christ, and he testifies about Christ too. We know that it's the Holy Spirit. Because the testimony itself says it's better for one man to die for the people than everybody yeah. dying. He testifies about Christ in the flesh. So that's, that's, that's how you test spirits. Okay? That's how you tell what was from the Holy Spirit, is whether Christ is proclaimed. Even if he's a wicked man, the fruit of his actions are certain. But the fruit of that, that was the Holy Spirit. Yes, indeed. We're going to back up about 15 or 20 minutes, but when you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, he's got 20,000 in his church. If you're counting and looking at the numbers, well, Christianity loses automatically, and perhaps we should be following Buddha. I know. Yeah. Well, so I think it gets clear. I'm trying to make it more clear and more simple because some people are so confused. And if we really say, and this is in the conclusion of my book, if we really say that what we need is a powerful work of the Holy Spirit, and I agree with that, that what we would do is proclaim Christ, because that's the spirit of prophecy. We're going to prophesy, we're going to proclaim Christ, testimony of Christ, the spirit of prophecy, just like they did in Acts when the Holy Spirit came on them. And we would proclaim boldly the Word of God, its true meaning, and its implications. Because to me, to prophesy is to bring out implications of Scripture that are like this one. To prophesy is to say, if someone does indeed come short of God's grace, and become apostate, they face certain doom. And if somebody's doing that to say that's what you're doing, is to prophesy. Validly. All right? With all the authority of God. And that's what Luther did. Uh, I see Luther saying, the Lord says, and then he rebuked the monks for their satanic oaths that they took. Um, and I heard MacArthur do this. And... John MacArthur says the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. Amen. If you question the meaning, you have nothing. You're just reading empty words. If, you don't, if the meaning doesn't prophetically, by the Holy Spirit, come to bear on us. So if we really want a powerful work of the Holy Spirit, we'll proclaim the Word with all authority, without uh, 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 embarrassment or shame, uh, without any equivocation, without any confusion. The Word of God says this. This is what God wants to do because here's what He said it. Here's the implications of it. Here's what He wants to do in our lives. That's to prophesy. Amen. And if somebody wants to disagree, then they can have their own version of it. But I've seen the other version. I don't know what did anybody any good. You know, thou saith the Lord, giveth thy money to the man prophesying over thee. <laughs> oh! Did you hear that? <laughs> Amazing. God spoke. Okay, let's get back to finish our verses here. Uh, we were at Stephen's verse, which was Acts 20, 30, and 31. And from speaking among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period Three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Okay, 
Paul says, from among your own selves, wolves will rise. And so what are they supposed to do about it? Give them a salary? No. Yeah, you, you can't tolerate it. You elders, you don't allow the wolves to have their way with the flock. And where do they come from? From within the church. So Paul warned about it. Okay, um, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. I quoted that earlier. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So we're not saved from sin by self-confidence. Making irrevocable oath. That's in my book, chapter 4. It's not a good idea. I, I, I swear today that I shall never sin again. No, 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 don't say that. Because you just doubled your sin. Because you will sin, and then you will break your oath when you sin. <laughs> so you made it worse. Just say, let your yes be no, yes. And the way you do that is say, God, by your grace, keep me from sin. All right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an important issue because that's what Rome had and that's what Luther wrote against and now we're bringing them back. Okay, 2 Corinthians 6, one. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you and on the day of salvation I helped you. Wow, that's interesting. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. I wonder why he quotes that thing at the acceptable time. I'll read the verse in front of this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him who knew no sin, we also urge you to receive the grace that we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Yeah. And then it goes on to that acceptable time. So would you say that the reason we're warned not to receive the grace of God in vain and that at the acceptable time is that there's a delay Okay, and that it's, it's at some point we've come to God's grace, but we don't see what we thought we were going to, and and everything didn't happen the way we thought it would, and we thought everything would get better in our lives, and all these big things would happen, and 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 if you bail out, if you were to bail out, you'd come short of grace or receive it in vain, but if you persevere to the salvation of the soul. You shall see the answer, that the grace was not really in vain. Okay, one more passage, 2 Peter 3.14, Carla. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Okay, since you look for these things, and what we were looking for is the new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, and that there's a coming judgment. So we, we need to be ready because the judgment is indeed coming. So we studied verse, Hebrews 12, verse 15. And the warning is uh, that we not allow a root of bitterness spring up and defile and be short, come short of grace. Next, my pen quit. Next week, we will talk about Esau. So if you want to prepare ahead of time, read the story of Esau in the Old Testament and think about what he did as far as selling his birthright and, and ask this, why was that so bad? He's, he's really treated here with, with uh, stern... Review about what he did. What was so bad about selling the birthright that, that caused this verse to be written about Esau? So we'll see you upstairs at 1030.